In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have a great episode lined up for you. We will start off with Afghanistan Part 2 um, because, you know, I think we did, a, uh, we had a nice conversation about, like, the approach to Afghanistan and um, U.S. policy in the region last time. This time we're focused on refugees in Afghanistan, which is, like, at this point, the most important story. Yeah, and then we'll talk about um, the about how we should approach um, continued death of unvaccinated people from COVID, um, and how we should not approach it. Um, and finally, we will have back on the podcast speech language path- pathologist uh, Kyle Chaska, who um, has been on episode before and it was a really eye-opening episode for both of us and so we have a great interview um to close out the show today um and as always if you like the show and you want to support us uh you can head on over to our patreon page at patreon.com slash the perspectrum and throw us a couple of bucks and help support the show yeah as happened the last time that we had kyle on we just finished the interview and once again we're we're Still kind of shocked by some of the things that he told us. So definitely stay for that interview. This is going to be a very important episode, especially for those of you that, um, you know, that are curious about how things are going in, uh, in the medical field, how things are going on the ground. Um, and hopefully if there's anybody that listens to this show that is still not convinced that COVID's a big deal, Maybe that'll be the the determined. Maybe maybe that'll be the last straw. I don't know. Yeah, Kyle is a pretty convincing person and a pretty vivid uh, storyteller. Yeah, whoever whoever um, uh, taught him how to give speeches should be given a medal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah, he, he's in line for the Nobel Prize, but you get it because you helped make him. You know, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we give the Nobel Prize to all the parents of the actual recipients. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, one of the things that my dad always tells me is that he is always going to have accomplished more than me because he has both his accomplishments and my accomplishments. So no matter what, he has more <laughs> accomplishments than me. And that's, that's kind of how I view teaching. Hmm. Makes sense. <laughs> Every student, your you're teaching is a pyramid scheme. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know what is not a pyramid scheme? Mm-hmm. The COVID numbers. No, although COVID kind of is a pyramid scheme where you get it and so you give it to a couple people and they give it to a couple people. <laughs> it's just the only effective pyramid scheme in history. Yeah, and and it happens to be effective at giving everybody a deadly yeah. disease. So Yeah, yeah. It also doesn't really give you anything back. Yeah. So it doesn't really work yeah. that well. All right, so what are the COVID um, numbers? So, so far in the world, 
214 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 209 million last week, which is a 5 million uh, increase of 5 million new cases, which is the same as it was from the week before. Um, so far, 4.46 million people have died, which is up from 4.40 million last week. So that's 60,000 new cases uh, in a week, which is, again, about the same increase that we saw from the week before. At this point uh, in the world, 65 doses have been administered for every 100 people, which is up from 63 per 100 five days ago. Um, so uh, not, not like quite as large of an increase as we've seen in the past few weeks, um, but again, it's only five days as opposed to like the usual seven that has the comparison. So hopefully we'll get a couple more doses per 100 and continue on uh, that strong growth trend we've seen for a while. In the U.S., at this point, 38.9 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 37.9 million a week ago. So in one week, we have 1 million new cases, which is an 11% increase in new cases from, um, from last week when we had 900,000 new cases in a week. So pretty huge increase in new cases as we're continuing to see ourselves um, you know, ride this, sec this, uh, this, this new wave. So far, 648,000 people have died from COVID, which is up from 642,000 last week, which is 6,000 new deaths, um, up from 5,000 new deaths the week before. So we saw an 11% increase in new cases. That's a 20% increase in new deaths, um, which is really sad. Yeah. At this point, 52% of the population is fully vaccinated, uh, up from 51% last week, and 61% are have, have at least one dose, which is up from 60% last week. So really not making much progress. In fact, backsliding on cases, backsliding on deaths, and very little improvement on vaccines. Yeah. Although uh, the good news is that the Pfizer vaccine has now officially been FDA approved, and there were actually a fair amount of people that were refusing to get the vaccine who said that if it was FDA approved, that they would, they would get it. Now, I think that some of those people will probably move the goalpost, but if we can even get another like five, 10% of people vaccinated from that, mm -hmm. like that's still a significant number at this point. Like that is yeah. still significant progress towards herd immunity. Yeah, I totally agree. Also, I mean, I was I was also reading a, a study earlier that had that had polled a bunch of people about their w interest in getting the vaccine um, last year, and then they polled the same people again to see how their opinions about the vaccine had changed and see how whether they ended up getting it or not, and it found that. A lot of people, so, so spoiler alert, it found that people that were definitely against the vaccine, like 100% I'm not getting it, tended to still not, you know, they tended not to have actually gotten the vaccine when they checked in a few months later. But people that were undecided, people that were suspicious of the vaccine and not really interested, but not 100% against it, a lot of them ended up getting it. And the reasons they cited were the things that we've been talking about on this podcast, so we have we've got to keep up the fight. There were things the reason they cited were things like pressure from family members. Yes. Um things like requirements 
uh, by family members that in order to see them, they had to get vaccinated. Yeah. Things as small as they wanted to go on vacation and the vacation location that they were going to required vaccines to travel there. Like it's the thing is people are hesitant, but for those that are like on the fence, it doesn't take that much to push them over, but sometimes it, but it does take time, right? It takes time. It takes continued, um, pressure and ultimately you know it, it all it takes is that one little last bit of convincing to push someone over the edge yeah i i don't have a transitional phrase but let's talk about afghanistan heck yeah let's do it a, a country that has been pushed over the edge boom there we go yes there you go fully over the edge um yeah so in afghanistan at this point you know obviously the u.s is continuing to uh evacuate as many people as they can um, and, uh, specifically focused on, um, U S citizens and, uh, people that have helped out the U S while they've been in Afghanistan. Um, but the fact is that, you know, the Taliban is still controlling a Kabul and the situation there is not any better. Yeah. And there are some numbers that I just want to read real quick to, demonstrate just how badly Afghanis are fucked, specifically the ones that have been helping us. So, um, so the independent estimates that about 300,000 Afghan civilians are believed to have helped the United States within the last 20 years. So that's 300,000 potential targets for the Taliban. All right. So, you know, keep that number in mind. Of those 300,000, roughly, uh, and this is according to Vox, roughly uh, 88,000 Afghans are estimated to have applied for a special immigration visa. Of those 88,000, the Pentagon announced this week that it intends to resettle 22,000 of them. And of those 22,000, only 2,000 have been evacuated at this point since, since July. Jesus. So, I mean, about, uh, you know, uh, several thousand Americans have still been, uh, have been evacuated. Um, there's about 15,000 Americans that are still in Afghanistan that still need to be evacuated. And look, I I don't necessarily blame Biden for prioritizing Americans. I mean, he's the president of the United States. That's he's going to prioritize Americans. You know, that's, that's just what's going to happen. Um, but God damn this, I, I I don't know how well another president would have done, but God damn it. We had to have done better than this. I mean, yeah, to be, to to put in perspective that, at 2,000 of the 300,000 is 0.67% of the people that aided the U.S. in Afghanistan. Yeah. 0.67% of the people that are potentially facing retribution from the Taliban. Yeah. Furthermore, um, it's also estimated that approximately a half a million Afghans, a half a million have been displaced within the last year hmm. because of because of the fighting because of 
the because of the Taliban. Yeah. So we fucked their country so badly. Yeah. I mean, and and that was that was a big caveat we had last week is that like we fucked them up so badly. The the most the one thing that the U.S. should definitely do is get the people that we fucked over out of there. Yeah. Like, like everything that we've done has basically made the situation go from bad to worse. All right. We armed the Mujahideen and a lot of Mujahideen people went on to form the Taliban and they used the guns that we gave them to overthrow the government. Then we went in and we, we overthrew the Taliban and engaged in this unwinnable 20 year war where we propped up a corrupt government, where we propped up Afghan warlords with child sex slaves, where we bombed tens of thousands of civilians to the point where, like, they, you know, they, they had this association with drones. Like, every time there was a noise overhead, children would freak out because, you know, m- many of them had lost their parents to, to drones, Hmm. you know, and and bombs don't discriminate when you're dropping bombs on a terrace, it's going to kill everyone around them. So we committed war crimes against them. And the best thing that we could have done for them was what we did, which was get out. And even that has fucked them. Yeah. So the least that we can do right now, the least we can do right now is to expedite the process of accepting refugees. Mm-hmm. All right. We have got to do that. Yeah. We have got to expedite that process. And what's kind of funny right now, and one of the things I want to focus on in this segment, is the fact that the Republicans don't seem to have a unified strategy over how exactly they're going to be criticizing Biden on this. Which just goes to show you that when your entire ideology is based on Republican good, Democrat bad, your strategy is often going to be all over the place. Because on one side, you have Republicans like Mitt Romney, Mike Lee, who are saying, who are criticizing Biden for all of the allies, all of the Afghan allies that we have left behind. You even had you even had Trump criticize him for that. So Trump actually uh, released a statement saying, quote, Can anyone even imagine taking out our military before evacuating civilians and others who have been good to our country who should be allowed to seek refuge? Hmm. Trump said that. As a legitimate criticism. That is a legitimate <laughs> criticism. Now, mind you, like, the next fucking day, he responded to this viral picture of more than 600 Afghan refugees crowded into a U.S. plane, and, um, and he responded with it by saying, quote, This plane should have been full of Americans. America first. Which is a direct contradiction of what he previously said. But the first one was a legitimate criticism. <laughs> yeah. So even 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 Trump's mind hasn't come up with a cohesive way of of criticizing Biden for this, which yeah. I mean is nothing new. <laughs> yeah, um, no, no surprise there. But but I, I don't want to focus too much on the Republicans that are criticizing Biden for 
for not accepting refugees, for not having a plan in place to make sure that refugees that have been helping us, interpreters, their families, um, and not just not just interpreters, but you know people that have people that have aided us, people that have given soldiers refuge, people that have given soldiers information, things like that. Yeah. Um, I I think that Republicans making that criticism well within their right to do that. And I agree with them. Mm-hmm. What I want to focus on are some of the really fucked up messages that a lot of both right-wing politicians and, um, and right-wing commentators have been, have been trying to make about this. One of the, one of the craziest things that I've been hearing is that this was actually that fucking up Afghanistan, get this, was a deliberate attempt to create more refugees that we would then have to accept into the United States to um, to change the electorate and elect more Democrats. That is such garbage. Yeah. Um, Charlie Kirk, one of our favorite asshats, uh, said, quote, Biden wants a couple hundred thousand more Ilhan Omars to come into America to change the body politic permanently. Okay, first off, she's Somalian, you yep. fucking racist. You fucking racist. She's not Afghani, she's Somalian. <laughs> Second off, you think that he did this on purpose? How dumb yeah. are you? And like, uh, yeah, yeah. Also, like, that's not going to tip it's the not. numbers. That's nothing. Forty, <laughs> like, like tens of millions of voters. Two hundred thousand votes is a rounding error. Like, even if literally every single one of them voted Democrat, and every single, even if it was two hundred thousand, and literally every single one of them voted Democrat, and literally every single one of them settled in one city. <laughs> it would not tip the, the really election significantly. It really wouldn't. Um, Tucker Carlson went so far as to say, as to call it an invasion. He said, first we invade, then we get invaded. So again, th- this is this is the whole replacement theory yeah. that goes back to the fucking Ku Klux Klan. This yeah. is the shit that the Ku Klux Klan was founded on. And here are these mainstream figures who are regurgitating those talking points. They're regurgitating yeah. clan talking points. Yeah. Stephen Miller in as a way as a way to argue against providing a safe haven for people fleeing a religious totalitarian government that is taking over their country as the United States leaves a power vacuum in its wake after decimating this country. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen Miller said, quote, um, that it's clear that Biden and his radical deputies will use their catastrophic debacle in Afghanistan as a pretext for doing to America what Angela Merkel did to Germany and Europe. Basically, she let refugees come in and they lived better lives. Yeah. Yeah. She let (laughs) refugees come in. In a, in a very it was it was unpopular in for her to do that in Europe. It there's been a lot of backlash, but she did the right thing by letting refugees come into Germany by influencing the EU to be more open to refugees, so that like 
people can seek better lives. Yeah. You know, it, and, and the thing is, it's not, it's not people that let in refugees that are the problem. It's the people convincing, uh, like native born citizens of these nations that they're going to, that they're threatened that are the problem. It's the people like people making these replacement theory arguments that are making everyone less safe. Yeah. Um, this one, this one tweet that I saw basically pointed out the fact that, um, Tucker Carlson with all of his anti-vaccination bullshit has caused way more deaths than any Afghan could possibly cause in their entire lifetime. Mm-hmm. And and Carlson's doing that on a fucking weekly basis. So, yeah. you know. Like, and also, like, why would like why would they? Yeah. <laughs> like that's the why thing. Why would it's, they? It's pure racism to to that to, to for to believe some of these arguments, which is like, well, we have to be, you know, we have to be worried because Afghanis are Afghans are terrorists. Yeah. Um which is like and, the argument being made by And Tucker Carlson did also specifically say, oh, they're probably going to land in your town. They're going to yeah, come in your town. About, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, all about uh, Steve Cortez, a a former a former Trump campaign advisor who is now a host at Newsmax, um, tweeted that the the picture with the, the all the Afghans in the airplane, and mm-hmm. said, "quote Raise your hand if you want this plane landing in your town." Jesus. I mean. I don't have an airport in my town. I'll but, raise my hand. You know, I'll, <laughs> I mean, I, I think they should probably land in a, in a town with an actual airport. Um, but, I, <laughs> but what's funny about this, I actually, uh, where I live, I live in Harrisonburg and we actually have a very large refugee population. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's a refugee re- resettlement site. So mm. the, the people that whose neighborhoods, these refugees are going to end up is my neighborhood. Yeah. And, and you know what? Going to be better off for it. Well, and, and you know what? <laughs> there's some of there. There's some of the nicest people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some of the kindest people. One time, when when there was this huge snowstorm that that had happened back when I was I was in undergrad when I was living here in undergrad. There was this huge snowstorm, and um, my wife's car just got buried in the snow, mm. and and she had to get to work. So you know we were we were outside and we were trying to dig up the car um and it was taking forever because there was like two and a half feet of snow yeah and this this guy who was who was a refugee who did not speak any english just Mm. came up to us he had a shovel and he just started helping us you know he Mm. we we couldn't communicate with him at all um but he just started helping us to be nice that's awesome i would much rather have that guy in my town than some fucking asshole like tucker carlson yeah, yeah, or or the people, yeah, people that are gonna see you struggling in the snow and just cold roll you, yeah, instead of helping, exactly, yeah, totally. And 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 I mean, this is maybe a little reductionist. I really like having, uh, you know, a diverse area around me because to quote good Gordon Ramsay, finally some good fucking food. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but okay, so all all joking aside though, like. It's it's crazy that they're making these arguments that the U.S. is going to be too generous about refugees. Yeah, because today at this point, like two thousand of our the people that have helped us in uh, Afghanistan 
are have have been evacuated at this point. Like I'm worried that our current program for uh, special visa applications from immigrants from Afghanistan is going to be too restrictive in response to like in response to these claims about you know refugees coming in unvetted and all this stuff you know biden and his administration have have you know had to address these things and biden has come out and said quote uh once screened and cleared we'll welcome these afghans uh who helped us in the war effort over the last 20 years to their new home in the united states of america because that is who we are and that is what america is 100 percent agree with that absolutely the thing is though <laughs> that our current uh program for special immigrant visas from Afghanistan, which has been, you know, around since 2009, is not is not new. Um, if it doesn't, if they don't, like, open up some of these qualifications, it will require certain employment qualifications to, to come to the United States. Uh, it will require providing proof of employment, a letter of recommendation, and as well as evidence of Afghan nationality. Uh, in order to complete these special visa applications. Now, now to be fair, we are putting out a lot of these applications. Um, you know, they're being processed in Germany and Kuwait and Spain and Qatar. But the thing is, we should be allowing any refugee from Afghanistan that, you know, in my opinion, we should be allowing any refugee from Afghanistan to settle in the United States, and we should make provisions for that. Because right now, like, this program is requires documentation that, oh, I don't know, you might forget when you're fleeing for your life. You know, like, you might not have a letter of recommendation uh, when you're going to make this, this application. And at the same time, this program, even before the Taliban started taking over Afghanistan, had a backlog of 20,000 applications. Um, and so now there's just going to be a bunch more that are coming in. And I worry that despite the program that we have in place, despite staffing it up and trying to process these applications as soon as possible, we are leaving uh, even like the best efforts that we have right now are leaving far too many people in the lurch. Yeah. The, the, best, the best example that I, I wanted to save this example for last because this is fucking hilarious. The best example of a really stupid argument that, um, that has been made. And th th if it weren't for the fact that this fits too much into this segment, this would have been a Dershowitz bag award, would mm -hmm. be Laura Ingram. So I, I just got to read you this. So she said... Quote, the lesson of this 20-year war cannot be that every time we turn a country upside down or make huge mistakes, our immigration laws, our refugee laws no longer apply. She's like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. Edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's so funny because that is probably the most honest statement of any of these statements because... She's acknowledging the fact that this is our fault, yeah. all right? We fucked them up. She just doesn't care. Yeah. She just doesn't care that this was what we, this is what we did. Mm -hmm. And also, 
funny that her take from this is, you know, after hearing about all of these uh, countries that we've been fucking up and upending, her take isn't, huh, we probably shouldn't do that anymore. Instead, her take is, oh, shit. Does that mean we're <laughs> going to have more brown people in our country? We can't be held responsible Seriously? for all the problems that we cause. Fuck Laura Ingram. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, like, that is the most honest assessment that we've so far seen out of. Yeah. Out of the right on this topic. Because, um, you know, as Nathan talked about right at the top, like. The people that helped us and just literally everyone in Afghanistan is screwed at this point. Yeah. Like, like best case scenario, the Taliban establishes a stable authoritarian, totalitarian, religious state yeah. that restricts music, uh, art, photographs, dancing, and, and prevents women from doing literally anything outside the home. Like and 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 then worst case scenario that it just devolves into a you know factional civil war, uh, and then they end up still with a uh, a a religious state after all that because you know the Taliban is kind of small right like like you know under a hundred thousand people and you know albeit growing but like not quite not quite large enough to to rule the nation by military fiat so you could you could imagine that in a country often you know with a history of being divided by factionalism um there might be some infighting and that will only exacerbate the uncertainty and the chaos in a nation already facing a pandemic a drought a famine um which all of which require you know strong leadership and international alliances to help fight and so yeah like we're looking beyond even even like beyond just the presence of the taliban you know the collapse of their government would be a humanitarian disaster and a, and a refugee crisis by itself uh, even without thousands trying to flee uh to keep themselves to keep themselves safe and and as we talked la about last week like this would probably have happened pretty much no matter when the U.S. Yeah. left. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that we could do that would be the right thing to do is provide a fast, effective, efficient, and, and relatively open program to allow Afghan refugees to settle in the United States. Okay, so now it's time for a more lighthearted segment. Good Actually. So, Nathan, why do we do Good Actually? Because the world sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Bad Actually. But sometimes, sometimes, when you look around you and you look hard enough, you can see that Good Actually is all around us. Man. So, Michael, really what nice. is this week's Good Actually? It is something we've already mentioned which is the fact that Pfizer got full FDA approval. Woo! And that's worth mentioning once, twice, a million times, because that is fast as fuck, boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is so fast. 
and yeah. and is awesome and like they didn't compromise the process they like you know they did a full emergency youth authorization initially and then did a full approval and review um for this vaccine and it is safe it is effective we can only hope that this actually convinces people uh to, to get vaccinated people that may have been hesitant about the emergency youth authorization. And now, you know, now that it's been fully vetted, they're, they're happier about it. Um, apparently this was like the most data that the FDA has ever had when reviewing a vaccine. Like this, it's, this couldn't be safer. It couldn't be more thorough. And it's one of, it's just literally one of the best vaccines ever. And I'm so happy that it has, full authorization for people 16 and up uh, to just knock down one more excuse for people not getting the vaccine. Yeah. It's yeah. just so encouraging. Yeah. And and like I said earlier, if, if this increases the number of people vaccinated like five to 10%, that's, that's still huge. huge at this point. Um, you know, I, I, I it, it is important to note that the common talking point that a lot of anti-vaxxers were making that, it wasn't FDA approved in some ways was presented in, in, in an intellectually dishonest way because it was presented as if like, Oh, they reviewed it and they decided they didn't want to approve it. Yeah. No, the, yeah. the fact of the matter is, and you know, it, you should, if, if this isn't something that you're as familiar with, you should definitely go listen to our interview with uh, Raymond Seelove, um, my father, a and P professor. Um, but, Basically, the process for something becoming FDA approved takes a very long time. Mm -hmm. And by the time it got approved, a lot more people would have died. Yeah. So that's why they did an emergency use authorization. That ran yeah. its course, and now we have a full approval. So yeah. it was good all along. And if, if this is what you were waiting for, Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so a little tip for good sprinkled into our good actually today. <laughs> and that's good actually. So for our second segment, we're talking about COVID deaths, um, which is not a new topic for this show. Uh, and I'm sure is on everybody's minds more often than they'd like. Um, because you know, over the past year and a half, we've become way, way too familiar uh, with deaths, especially COVID deaths. In, you know, in 2020, we had 23% excess mortality. So 23% higher deaths than were expected based on previous year trends, years trends. Um, like literally more people died and more people know someone who died than literally at any point in American history. And um, and the thing is, in 2021, we have this solution. And so it's easy to get mad that we're still facing rising cases, rising deaths. And you know that's not without justification. But the thing is that at this point, you know, at this point, it's a tragedy. One of the biggest reasons why we're doing this segment is because in the last week, I actually lost two relatives that were very dear to me, um, both of which were unvaccinated. 
but both of which were good people. People that exactly. I did that I did have very fond feelings towards. And I, I'm seeing all of these all of these people, they're rightfully pissed off at the unvaccinated. Who in some cases they see stories like that and they they laugh, they celebrate, and the thing that we need that we need to say is enough. Enough of that shit. All right. It is okay to be pissed. It is okay to be annoyed. But making a bad decision does not mean that a person deserves to lose their life over it. Yeah. That is not, like, that is not what leftists are supposed to be. That is not who leftists are supposed to be. We're supposed to be the people that are fighting for health care for everybody. Not just health care for people that agree with health care for everybody. Health care for everybody. We're the ones that are supposed to be fighting for a more inclusive society. And if we are the ones who are celebrating when a person loses their life, we are not living up to the promise that we claim to have. Yeah. The people that we claim to be. And look, I understand that some of you might not know somebody who has died of COVID. You know, you might know of somebody, but you might not know somebody. But I can almost guarantee you, you know somebody who is not vaccinated. Yeah. You know somebody that refuses to get the vaccine. And yes, they probably refuse to get the vaccine because, you know, fucking Tucker Carlson told them some stupid shit about it. Or they left, they, they, they read some stupid article that said that there were bits of dead baby in the vaccine. And yes, that is stupid. That is really, really stupid. But that does not mean that they deserve to die for it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I feel like I shouldn't be making, have to make this argument to leftists, but I'm gonna. What if it was someone you knew? Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have to make that argument, yeah. but apparently I have to make that argument. What if it was somebody that you knew? What if it was somebody that you love, someone that you cared about? Yeah. And, and yeah. that actually brings it to the crux of this segment, the important message behind this segment. And that is the fact that when conservatives see that, when people that are against vaccines see liberals celebrating a person who has died of COVID, when they see that, whether rational or not rational, that is just going to make them less likely to get vaccinated. That is not going to bring them over to your side. That is going to make them think, fuck those people. I don't want to be associated with them in any way. I'm definitely not getting the vaccine now. And that is the exact opposite of what we should be pushing towards. It doesn't matter how right you are to be pissed. It is not effective. 
It is just not effective. So what yeah. you need to be doing is you need, to, you need to be talking to your relatives, the people that you love who are not vaccinated. And you need to tell them how much you love them, how much you care about them, and how worried you are. How worried you are about their safety and their well-being. To one of the points that Michael made earlier about the biggest reasons why people who are on the fence about the vaccine have, have decided to get it, one of the biggest reasons is family pressure. Families. Not talking heads. Not assholes on Twitter who are celebrating when a person dies. Families. That is what you need to be doing. You cannot drive more people away from the vaccine just to protect your ego, just to protect the fact that you are right. Being right about COVID, being right about the vaccine, that's not a victory. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, I just want to double down on two, two points there. I think we're used to being able to say I told you so and have that be kind of okay. That That is a, a victory for you, good for you. The fact is that who is to blame for all this is like tragically irrelevant because the people that are, you know, experiencing the majority of the fallout from this are the unvaccinated. It, you know, breakthrough case rates in May were just 1.18%. 99.2% of people who died from COVID in May were unvaccinated. It is, you know, truly a an unvaccinated pandemic at this point. These pe these are the people that are dying. You're five times more likely to get COVID if you're unvaccinated and 29 times more likely to be hospitalized. So it does not matter if you're right about the fact about the fact that you know people who are unvaccinated are driving this yeah. because it's that's not a point that convinces people who are unvaccinated yeah 80% of vaccinated americans um pin the blame for the rise in covid cases on unvaccinated people according to a poll that was done at the beginning of August. Fewer than 10% of unvaccinated Americans blame unvaccinated Americans. 27% blame, blame travelers from other nations to the U.S. 27% blame the mainstream media somehow. 23% blame Americans traveling internationally. According to another poll, 6% of unvaccinated people um, believe that most of the blame for the new surge uh, falls on the unvaccinated, with 9% believing that a great amount of the blame falls on the unvaccinated. But 7% of unvaccinated people think that vaccinated Americans are to blame, 
with 15% thinking that they have a great deal of the blame. They're more likely to believe that a person who is vaccinated is responsible for the rise in COVID than someone who is unvaccinated, which is a, in, which is a purely illogical position to hold, which should drive home to you the power of, their, of the need to protect one's beliefs and one's ego in the face of opposition. They are willing to hold a purely illogical position, like taking no precaution makes you safer than taking precaution, in order to preserve their belief system. They're even more likely to have experienced the downsides, the impact of COVID. So 29% of vaccinated Americans said that over the last month, um, someone, them or someone in their family has gotten COVID versus 39% of unvaccinated Americans. 12% of vaccinated Americans say that they had a family member or close friend or themselves hospitalized in the last month due to COVID. That's 20% among the unvaccinated. 9% of vaccinated Americans say that they have a family member or close friend who has died from COVID. 15% of unvaccinated Americans say the same thing. They are literally able to disbelieve, to disregard logic and disbelieve their own, own eyes, their own experiences, in either thinking that vaccines are not safe or they're not effective or that COVID is a hoax. And what that should drive home to you is the power of the system that has convinced them that these things are true. Yeah. Which not only makes our job all the more important to use every method at our disposal to aid the effort to get people vaccinated and to not take any steps that would cause someone to entrench themselves in their position. But it should it should emphasize Nathan's second point as well. These people didn't stand a chance. And they shouldn't die for it. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> the people that you should be turning your ire towards are the people behind this propaganda campaign. Yeah. There's a very, very effective propaganda campaign and you know, a lot of conservative commentators, a lot of Republican politicians, they have decided that it's okay to sacrifice their own voters, to martyr their own voters. Yeah. Those are the people that you should be blaming. Those are the people you should be angry with. The people that got duped and have suffered because of it, those aren't the people you should be hating. Mm -hmm. We need to stop hating each other and start hating the people at the top. The lives of people that make bad decisions still matter. Yeah. So, honestly, if you are celebrating the deaths or the hardships of, of the people that have been duped, And not turning your ire towards the politicians that have been making policy, that have made 
that has made COVID even worse. The commentators that have been spreading misinformation. You're part of the problem. You are actively making the problem worse. This is what creates tribalism. This is what creates tribalism. Because when conservatives, when people that are not vaccinated, see people on the other side be so sociopathically evil that they would celebrate the death of an ideological opponent, they want to do everything they can to distance themselves from you. This is not a political battle, though. The question of whether or not people should get vaccinated has nothing to do with politics. It has become political because of a very well-organized propaganda apparatus, but it never should have been a political question. And the more that you, the more that you celebrate that, celebrate suffering, the more you do that, the more political you make this entire situation. And now it's time for our favorite segment, Asset of of the the Week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asset this week? Well, Michael, our asset this week is uh, someone we actually haven't had in a while. And I actually feel kind of guilty that we haven't been giving him the recognition he deserves. Hmm. It's Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity, come on down, brother. (laughs) <laughs> that is excellent. Sean Hannity. Oh, so good to have you on our show. Yeah. <laughs> so what did Sean Hannity do to make it on our show tonight? So you know how a lot of people have been feeling like the entire situation in Afghanistan has just been terrible and they've been really feeling for all of the uh, all of the individuals that have been suffering under Taliban yeah. rule um, yeah. that have suffered over the last 20 years? Well, where we see suffering, Sean Hannity sees the opportunity for profit. So Sean Hannity was, was doing a radio show, and he actually he used what was going on in Afghanistan to sell phone coverage and pillows. So he, he said, quote, There is a stampede. Not only out of Afghanistan, but a stampede away from high prices, overpriced services like big carriers like Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile. The average family is making the switch to pure talk. (laughs) He's like, you may see suffering in Afghanistan. I see suffering here at home. People paying too much for their cell phone coverage. (laughs) I mean... I usually don't say this, but first world props, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. I love the stampede analogy. It's not even good. It's not even yeah. like good copywriting. It's ridiculous. Like, it's terrible. And then, and then afterwards he said, quote, how would you like to be in Kabul today as an American? And you don't get into the airport. Where are you thinking your life is headed? If you're one of those family members, I bet you're not sleeping. I don't even think my pillow could do it. Mypillow.com. That's where I go. I fall asleep faster. I stay asleep faster. These are going to be a lot of sleepless nights for so many of our fellow Americans. We've got to get them home. I love that he brings it back to the point he started with. He bookends the infomercial 
with I mean, political points. <laughs> I mean, I teach bookending to my students. You it's, know, it's so important. he he he, he clearly did go to a a, a basic level public speaking course. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> that's that's so funny. Oh my god! I, and you should anytime, anytime, <laughs> anytime you're talking about a refugee crisis, you shouldn't say dot com. <laughs> <laughs> There's no dot com that fits. Dot yeah. org, sure. Dot gov, absolutely. But no dot com belongs in a segment about refugees. <laughs> like also pillow, probably not also, pillow yeah. either. <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ, and 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 look, I. What's hilarious is that um, the my pillow guy actually recently turned against Sean Hannity. <laughs> Because uh, you know Sean Hannity wasn't being as you know wasn't being crazy enough about the uh, the stop the steal bullshit. Um, but man, I I just I've missed Sean Hannity. Yeah, like we 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 we've been doing him dirty, you know, by not <laughs> by not having uh, him on more, not having him on more. I'm just I I feel I feel guilty. I feel very guilty. Well, I'm sure he'll do other crazy shit that uh, we'll get him on our show again sometimes. True, true. So, <laughs> so deep, congratulations. A deep and hearty congratulations. To Sean Hannity for being our asshat of, of the, the week. week. All right. Up next, we have the triumphant return of speech-language pathologist Kyle Chaska. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us once again. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk to y'all, and uh, thank you for calling it the triumphant return. That makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> well, you know, thank the- you so much for coming back. the The first episode we had you on was like that was that was a real eye opening conversation for me, and I thought I think it was one of our better episodes. And and yeah, and you just provided such a perspective. So thank you so much for coming back on. Yeah, like I, 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 I've told I've told you several times this, Kyle. But like Michael and I, when we finished that first interview, we we just needed to take a second before we recorded the rest of the podcast. Um, so at this point, uh, COVID is over, so your job is easy now, right? Uh, well, my job isn't uh, ever easy. Uh, <laughs> it's not to, I don't know, self-aggrandize, but. And COVID is definitely not over. Uh, so, um, you know, there's still people out there getting in motorcycle wrecks or dealing with cancer or strokes that I work with, but uh, still also dealing with active COVID and uh, post-COVID cases. And uh, cases that are... I guess why I would call tangentially related to COVID um, mm. more in the fact that, you know, we kind of talked about this last time, but people still putting off like required surgeries or uh, in the case of, well, one, one case, um, you know, I got a call for a patient down in the uh, emergency department um, stat order. I get down there. And, you know, a very frail older gentleman there, can't hardly talk, um, didn't have COVID, but what the story was is he um, lived at home alone, 
but did have health problems that he needed assistance with. So his son uh, would check on him daily. This son got COVID Mm. and there wasn't anybody he could trust to go take, you know, keep an eye on his father uh, consistently. So, you know, the son did as best he could. He tried to get people over there, but there uh, towards the last eight days of his infectious period, when he was self-quarantining away, you know, trying to do the right right thing um, to not expose uh, his father didn't have any assistance. Hmm. Wow. And when he was finally able to, as safely as he could get over there, uh, he found him on the ground, you know, and God knows how long he'd been down there, but just uh, the man, uh, he wasn't a big man to begin with, but just wasted away. So we suspected mm-hmm. it was pretty early on. And I mean, you know, the, the man's father had tried to get sure. people over there, but there just wasn't, you know, wasn't anybody he could trust or wasn't the ability. Mm. And uh, that gentleman, I, he'd had a history of esophageal issues. So the tube that takes food, and I guess for your listeners who don't know what speech pathology is, is I deal with speaking, thinking, and swallowing issues. Um, so the tube that takes food from your, the back of your mouth, from your throat to your stomach, that's the esophagus. And he'd had esophageal issues before this and a bolus of food. Uh, a bolus is the medical term for like just chewed up food. Mm. Uh, had restricted his esophagus so he couldn't eat anything because it literally like i you know i saw him at the bedside he reacted horribly to my tests at the bedside so i'm like okay i need a full swallow study on him and this involves taking the patient to x-ray having them drink and eat barium coated items Mm. so that i can watch as it uh watch the action of the swallow mechanism to check for issues Yeah, and literally just saw the food start to pile up. Oh my God. And so he was also weak enough that he, what we call aspirated normally. So when food or liquid goes into the uh, trachea instead of the esophagus, that's well, and past the vocal cords. That's called aspiration. Hmm. So he aspirated initially, and then um, once, because like, so for the x-ray, it's just, we focus pretty much just on the head, and we try and narrow the field of vision. That way we're not exposing the rest of the body to as much radiation as we can, right? Um. So we didn't exactly at first see the piling up, right? So we just started to see it when it went basically like started to enter our field of view. Oh my gosh. And we realized, oh, this is a major issue. 
and then mm-hmm. he like kind of had a convulsion almost like kind of coughed or and it shot up his esophagus and he aspirated that mm-hmm. and we followed it the rest of the way down to his stomach we did a sweep and saw the blockage mm-hmm. um and he you know he was just so weak from this our surgeon didn't think he would survive a procedure to you know attempt to remove that and um the son you know but we offered the son that choice because his father wasn't able to fully make those decisions yeah um you know we gave him the best information we could and uh based on his father's previous wishes, you know, they chose to move on with hospice. Yeah. Which, you know, hospice tends to get, or palliative care, they do tend to get kind of a bad reputation in the medical field or outside of the medical field, especially. Um, you know, it's like, oh, you're just giving up on the person. But in a case like this, what it then allowed them to do was to get him home, set up services to help make him as comfortable as possible with medications and amounts that would normally be damaging. Yeah. And allow him to at least pass as peacefully as he, as he could at that point. And, and so basically, um, if I'm, you know, if I'm getting this right, what led to this was the fact that his primary caregiver got, had COVID. Yeah. His son who checked on him daily before this, yeah, uh, got COVID and tried to wow. be responsible, you know, not interact with his father, tried to get people over, uh, to check on him. And he seemed to be doing okay at first, uh, wow. you know, but there was just a span of like eight ish days where he couldn't find anybody. Yeah. That's interesting because that that's not something that you normally think about. Like that yeah. is not going to be recorded as a COVID death. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was due to COVID. But it was due to COVID. Yeah. Like it's yeah. also putting yeah. people out of commission that have that you know have important roles. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that seems to be one yeah. of the major things that's been stressed in this whole COVID period is like all of the systems of slack that we rely on. That like all of the like patchwork solutions to get people the things they need rather than the optimal solution. The optimal solution would obviously be some kind of in-home care or something like mm-hmm. that for this person, but not being feasible. Um, yeah. Know, it relies on, we rely on family support. That's a super common stopgap measure for those in need of consistent care. Mm-hmm. But when something like COVID stresses our system, there's all kinds of second order impacts on people to your point. And that's like, that's why we measure like excess mortality, right. And not just COVID deaths because Mm -hmm. they reverberate. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing, like, so there are at home services available, home health services, but depending on your insurance, they're not always covered. Um, and thus tend to be prohibitively expensive to those of lower income status who would need those the most if their insurance, you know, if their insurance doesn't cover it. 
And then even those are just, we, so being part of a rehab unit, we try and set those services up often for our patients who are going home, but still need a little extra therapy or a little extra assistance. And consistently throughout COVID, we've seen, you know, delayed times of when the patient gets home versus when they could even potentially start getting those services. So we have to work with family on stopgap measures or, you know, figure out what else we can do for them at that point in time. Um, And then you worry about like, even with these home health services, you know, they're still going from patient to patient, home to home. And, you know, that puts them at risk, the healthcare provider and the patient at risk, but there's no good solution to this. Cause then the other solution is, okay, well, grandpa goes to a nursing home, but risks being in the community setting there and contracting COVID that way. And there, like I said, it's, it, there's just no good solution. And as we see more of this come up, we're seeing these services get stretched thin when they're not, weren't even enough to cover what was really truly needed in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So for for people that might not have heard the original episode in which we had you on, Mm -hmm. um, because I do want to, I do want to talk a little bit about COVID patients that you are seeing as well. Um, What exactly does a speech language pathologist do for somebody that um, either has COVID or maybe recovering from COVID? So depending on the severity level, I, like I said, I address speaking, thinking, swallowing. So that COVID brain fog you hear about, I try and work patients through that. Um, Mm. If they are, you know, getting weaker, we can try and adjust their diets to help make things easier on them so that they're not, you know, because some of these patients, you have to balance even to the point where how much are you chewing and is that energy expenditure more so than what they're going to gain from the calories of that meal? Oh, wow. And so then at that point, do you look for an alternative feeding solution like, you know, a tube through the nose, down through the esophagus to the stomach? More, even more radical than that is a surgery to implant a a tube through the stomach or into the small intestine to give uh, a nutrient food solution to. So, so I work are, with, are COVID cases, can COVID cases really be that draining to the point where it's like chewing takes more energy than the amount of calories you get from it? Yeah, I actually, wow. I had a gentleman, um, when he came in, I mean, he wasn't, if you're coming to the hospital with COVID, you're obviously not doing great at home, Yeah. but just he you know, at first I had him on what we call a, a mechanically altered diet. So, you know, the food was kind of round up to make it a little easier. Cause I'm like, okay, you know, he's, he gets kind of fatigued with this. Let's make it easier. You know, no, like hard carrots, you know, boil the veggies, make things nice, easy, soft, you know, talk with the nutritionist, get him, uh, you know, those kind of diet supplements, insurers, stuff like that. 
not sponsored by Insure, but that's just the one we happen to use, those sorts of things. Yeah. And um, he just, you know, we kept having to up his oxygen. He just kept getting weaker and weaker. And okay, so we have to go to a pure, you know, like a pure puree diet. So everything is just, you know, so soft. And he's barely alert enough to get that down. And, you know, but it's at least, oral intake is at least better because with the tube feedings, you know, you can get, you, plenty of people live on those for years, but it can be very jarring to a system that's not adjusted to it, causing, um, I guess, uh, cover your ears if you don't like bodily functions, but causing excessive diarrhea, which can then dehydrate the patient. So then we've got to put an IV in to get them hydrated. And then, you know, at first for him, we uh, put in an NG tube for what, uh, when he started to get worse enough. So NG is the nasogastric tube through the nose, through the back of the throat to the stomach. Um, and he started trying to pull that out. Like he wasn't conscious of it. Uh, he started trying to pull out other IV lines because he just like a kind of a, a primal reaction because it's not comfortable to have one yeah. of those in. Yeah. <laughs> and every movement with an IV line is <laughs> a risk. Yeah. Yeah. It, so then we had to sedate him to keep him, I mean, you know, talking with the family the whole time, but to keep him from pulling on those lines that were keeping him alive because we had the tube in his nose the supplemental oxygen was going at as high as we could get without intubating him and you know he had a catheter in which is the tube through the urethra to relieve the patient of urine and a you know another tube in his uh in his and again sorry for the audience but in his anus to help relieve uh bowel movements and the poor he was just wired up but it was all that was keeping him alive and even that was failing and we were trying everything and you know then talking with the family you know at one of the meetings they talked with the doctor and decided to move him to hospice and even without like any change in medications to, I guess, you know, without removing anything or changing anything, he passed that night. Um, and I mean, those are the cases that really get to me just because I'm a therapist. I mm -hmm. exercise people. I work with people to get them better. Yeah. And there was no amount of therapy I could do because therapy would have just, you know, actively taken the, what little energy he had left to keep himself alive, breathing. Yeah. breathing. And that, uh, yeah, the cases like those are the worst. So, um, so one question that I want to ask, um, as, as a healthcare worker, 
Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we've been seeing a lot recently are uh, there's been like memes going around about uh, nurses refusing to get vaccinated or other healthcare workers refusing to get vaccinated, basically making the argument of, oh, well, you you were standing up for us and you were saying support nurses and support healthcare workers. And now you're just turning it now. Now you're not speaking up when we get fired for not getting vaccinated. I just I want to hear your thoughts on that. Do you think that Again, assuming that it's not because of a medical reason, like, you know, some type of allergy to something in the vaccination, but like a personal reason um, for a personal reason, do you think that it's fair to fire healthcare workers for refusing to to get vaccinated? So I'll first openly disclose I'm vaccinated myself. Um, And I think people should definitely get vaccinated, especially those of us who are healthcare workers, I mean, I've, you know, if you're in healthcare, you should have had enough background to understand, you know, if you're using evidence-based practice, like you should be, then you should look at the evidence for the vaccine and be able to make that connection. Yeah. Now it gets trickier and I think you may be a little surprised to hear this, though, coming from me when it comes to the firing of nurses who or doctors or support staff who don't want to be vaccinated. Um, I'm at a smaller hospital in a rural county in Iowa, heavily favored conservative. Yeah, there's a fair number of my colleagues who are not vaccinated. Mm. Our hospital currently does not have the policy that you need to be, or you'll be fired. But if they were to enact that policy, our hospital would need to shut down. Mm. We don't have the staff to cover for that. Maybe, maybe bigger hospitals do, and maybe they can sustain that. And you know, pull up from ranks of people who are coming in as needed to come on part or full time. But from the perspective of this smaller hospital, literally we could not afford to. Interesting. Our hospital would shut down. We wouldn't have enough nurses. We wouldn't have enough therapists. As far as I know, the doc, all the docs have, but the managerial staff, we wouldn't have enough of them. And they're highly important, especially when you talk about those who specialize in like surgical cleaning and that. Yeah. Um, not that they're not important in the rest of the hospital, but just like, you know, or the staff who are managing, you know, our like calls and coordinating all of that, yeah. uh, our, you know, office support staff like that uh, our hospital would shut down that's um, interesting I, I i definitely had not thought of that yeah um that is that is a very good point uh i guess from a more principle-based question like assuming that um it was actually practical like what would you think of a policy like that like in in some of the bigger hospitals where they actually do have um, the ability to hire, to hire different people, uh, to hire people and continue to run. 
Mm-hmm. I I don't blame a hospital for doing it. Yeah. And I don't know. It's it's hard from my perspective because there are a lot of people in my hospital who are not vaccinated who I have a great amount of respect for yeah. in their respective fields. And I know it'd be a loss to the patients to see them go. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know you asked me as a matter of principle. As a matter of principle, I think you should. Okay. Get vaccinated. But, but it's, it seems it's, like it's not the most important question. Yeah. 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 It just, the, the, the principle is that you should run a hospital as a hospital. Yeah, and you can't run a hospital without nurses and doctors and therapists and support staff. Yeah. So yeah. Like, I think your first answer is like ultimately the one. And yeah. you know, like and and even even on, in bigger hospitals, like as a nation, we're facing a nursing shortage, right? Like well, we that, don't have enough nurses. Well, yeah, I mean, like we're running short staffed as it is. Yeah. Um, rural hospitals like mine that are you know, serve these smaller communities. We, for the level of trauma center we are, we're the biggest hospital within, oh, a 75 mile drive that can actually make, you know, without having to turf them to like a university hospital that's, I'd I guess relatively close by is still an hour and a half away from where we are. (laughs) You know, I mean, I mean, they're smaller community hospitals, but they don't have then the surgical staff for emergent operations. So we get a lot of intake from smaller hospitals that are fielding bigger cases to us. And that if we can't handle them, they get funneled to, you know, uh, the big city in Iowa's Des Moines or Iowa City, um, those hospitals. So... It's, you know, it's a matter of if our hospital were to go down, there wouldn't be, and not to mention just from saving patients and keeping people alive, it's actually a huge employer in the community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, for a small town like uh, Ottumwa, it's not, you know, there's so many people who work there, work there part-time or have worked there in the past, you know, if that were to go missing, it may, you know, it had stand a fair chance of killing the town. And like, also there's a community college nearby that we train nurses at that hospital. You know, they come to us for rotations and okay, well, if they can't go there, then they've got to go to smaller hospitals but they're missing those rotations for like the acute rehab unit or, you know, those bigger surgical sort of things. So then there's a huge cascading effect of issues. More nurse shortages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. More nurse shortages. Cause they can't get the training more respiratory therapist shortages. Cause they can't get the training because respiratory therapists, you know, there's a lot of community colleges that provide those. And especially when you're dealing with people on ventilators, they're huge at helping manage that. 
um, yeah. or managing people coming off ventilators, managing people coming on high levels of oxygen with what sort of mass, what sort of nasal cannulas, what's what, you know, coming up with those solutions. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it seems so like we, cutting off our, or at least compromising our hospital capacity. It's like too early to do that. Like maybe you could do that if like COVID was like almost over or whatever. And, yeah. and like you might have, like maybe you could get to the point where you have enough excess staff in order to be able to, to withstand like large scale firings or whatever. But ultimately I think like, ultimately I think the, the push is that like people are not going to bite or people are going to bite the bullet. Like they'll yeah. assume that you're not going to take the gambit of losing your job, but yeah. at the same time, they can't afford for people to take that gambit. So it's almost an empty thread. And that seems like a big risk. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a dangerous balancing act. The way our hospital is currently handling it is those who are unvaccinated have to always wear a N95, mm. um, which are the real heavy duty masks, um, not kind of the standard surgical mask, but like the, you know, the blue ones you see or the duckbill ones. And uh, so it's weird. I can't actually wear them because I can't perform the fit test for them. They use like a spray to see if it's fitting, but you have to be able to taste the spray in the first place um, to see if the mask fits. And I just have a weird quirk where I can't taste the spray. Um, so I use what's called a papper, which we kind of talked about last time, which is kind of a, uh, an inflatable hood thing that looks like, well, you know, the CDC, what they wear in every movie you've seen pretty much. Uh, you know, those things are real. 2319. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Oh, Monsters Inc. Yeah, pretty much. Um, looks pretty similar to that. Uh, little clearer face shield so you can at least see my face but it's like in theory i'd have to wear that thing around and then while it's nice that it protects me from covid um the pump i wear on my back constantly to have it is just going so you know with these covid patients they're on oxygen i've got that thing going half the time i'm like leaning like right in their face to hear them because they're also struggling to breathe so <laughs> it's a it, it's an adventure yeah so we do need to wrap up here in a sec but the last question that i have for you is what would you say to people that are still not taking the pandemic seriously that still think it's not a big deal that think that this idea of a resurgence is bullshit what, what would you say to people that are still not there yet well right now um about a quarter of our icu is covid patients which well not as high as it has been is still a significant portion and they're all people who have not been vaccinated i i know what's happened but i haven't seen a single case of somebody who has been vaccinated and has come in to our hospital with COVID. Wow. Wow. So, so I'm just so curious about that. Like, so, so if you're dealing with these, you're, you're dealing with these patients, specifically ones like in recovery, I guess, from COVID where they have had it, 
they aren't vaccinated, what are they thinking? What have they talked to you about like at that point, what their outlook is like on the disease and on COVID? Because I remember when we first talked after people had COVID, it was like, oh man, this is really serious. Like once they made it to the hospital, like this is like something I really need to take seriously. Is that something that extends in the unvaccinated population to people wanting to become vaccinated? Um, a lot do. Yeah. A lot definitely are some, there was still lack of opportunity. Um, like I said, we're in a particularly rural, particularly lower income area. And I had a patient who was post COVID and had been intubated. She came out and she had been transferred to us from another hospital. And we've realized she spoke a language that we literally had to get set up a time with an interpreter to have be able to speak uh, with that patient. So there wasn't a, I mean, you know, as good as some of that messaging is, there's still gaps in that system and yeah. gaps in the way she could have accessed it initially. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but, or there's like even a patient who I have right now who is not COVID, but is unvaccinated, needs to go to a, a skilled nursing facility for further therapy, but they were having trouble finding placement because nobody would take an unvaccinated person hmm. in the immediate, in some, you know, a lot of them they tried. So then it leads to that holding pattern for that patient. She, I mean, you know, it's been offered to her, but also there's some things with how she can consent to it because of some cognitive issues currently going on and a whole bunch of other legal things that are making it difficult to then, you know, deliver that vaccine. I mean, you know, those are outlier cases in general, but in a nation this big, they're still factors. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the path to keeping everyone safe and getting everyone vaccinated means getting 320 plus million individual people, which means that outliers are a big, big factor. Yeah. Yeah. We have been talking to speech language pathologist, Kyle Chaska. Um, Kyle, thank you so much for joining us once again. And on behalf of America, um, thank you and all healthcare workers for everything that you are doing in order to try to bring this pandemic back under control. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. And if you haven't, get your shots. Try and convince your friends and family too. I know I'm trying to convince slowly my coworkers too. And yeah, just try and get through this. And now we will end our show as we usually do on our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight is that tomorrow, which actually as of the time that this has been posted today, uh, I will be starting my new position as a full-time instructor. And I am very excited to, to meet my students, to get back into the swing of things. I'm, I, 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 I've been working in the summer, like doing a lot of manual labor on my parents' farm. 
but I just, I've missed teaching and we're also going to be in person, um, you know, mask required. So I'm very much looking forward to that. So I, I'm just, I'm just happy to get back into the swing of things. Dude, that's great. Congratulations. About you, Michael, what, what is your, uh, highlight? Oh man. My highlight is another one looking forward to this coming weekend. Brie and I are going on vacation. If you're a loyal listener to the show, I won't be on for the next two episodes or no at next one episode. Uh, so Brie and I will be going on vacation. We'll be roughing it camping in the Alaskan wilderness, uh, for, for a while. Um, so yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be exhausting and intimidating and beautiful. So it's going to be a great vacation. Yeah. And we're actually going to be uh, off next week because while he is in Alaska, I, um, I am going to be, uh, with my wife who is going to be having some surgery. So, um, you know, we're, we're definitely hoping that everything goes well there uh, and everything does go well. I, I will be back the week afterwards uh, and then yep. Michael will be back the week after that. Awesome. So have fun in Alaska, brother. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum. And you'll hear it.